Uh, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus 32 once again. We're going to be looking at the end of the chapter in just a few minutes, uh, beginning around verse number 15. We'll be reading uh, through verse number 26, but we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Uh, this message, um, you'll probably hear it again later this year, um, maybe a couple times this year, I don't know. Uh, but you'll probably hear some of the, the topics and conversations that uh, we talk about tonight, maybe later on uh, around a certain month of the year, I don't know. But I, I think this text and this subject, it inspires is always appropriate, not just in certain seasons and in certain times of year, but maybe now more than ever for our generation, for the culture that we find ourselves in, for our country, for just the way that the, the, the world is maybe. I think this conversation needs to happen today more than ever before, and I think we'll, we'll be benefited uh, by it uh, uh, just as much as any generation before. So we're studying the story in the life of Moses as he leads the children of Israel from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. The first uh, 20 so chapters of Exodus are about going from Exodus, uh, going from Egypt to Sinai. Then they spend some time at Sinai receiving the law from God, the, the, the commandments from God, the, organ, the order of the tabernacle from God. And then around chapter 32, they begin to make their plans to depart from the mountain and head toward the promised land. What should have been just a two-week journey ends up becoming a 40-year journey. We'll get to that more in the future. Uh, but they were just 14 days away um, from what they had figured up and what they would find out later. Um, it would not be a long journey, um, except they make it a very long journey. But along the way, really, the, the story focuses on Moses. Moses, um, as the leader of God's people, Moses as the messenger from God, speaking on behalf of, of God as he encounters him at Sinai, as he goes down among the people. Um, Moses goes up and receives revelation from God, and, and, and he's still up, as the story picks up in chapter 32, he's still up at Mount Sinai receiving the revelation from God. Um, and down in the camp, meanwhile, the people um, are about to abandon their faith completely. Um, and our aim in this study, in this portion of the Scripture from the end of Exodus into Numbers into Deuteronomy, the aim of this is to learn about the connection and the relationship that Moses had with God. Um, literally, we'll read in the next chapter that he was called a friend of God. That's a pretty rare um, uh, 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 label to, to be given to a person um, on any end of the Scriptures. But it's one the New Testament says that we can have um, through Christ, that we can encounter God as a friend does. Um, we can encounter him like Abraham did, like Moses did. And as Moses is called the friend of God, so can we be called the friends of God. But we're also going to learn a lot, not just from Moses, but we're going to learn a lot from the people, um, the, the, the people of Israel. Um, and, and really, they serve as contrast to Moses, not that they were the enemies of God. They weren't. God loved them, and he was for them as much as he was for Moses, and he had he gave give them access to everything that he gave Moses access to. But we're going to learn a lot about the the the, the people in the camp in contrast to Moses, um, because God loved them. He rescued them. He revealed himself to them through signs and wonders and blessings. But they resisted him, right? They resisted him, supposing that he was withholding good from them, right? Uh, just like the enemy worked on Adam and Eve, he worked on them, right? He told Adam and Eve that, yes, God said you could do all this stuff, but that one thing he told you that he couldn't do, do you think you can trust him since he's holding something back from you? God, God, you or The devil used the same tactic against the people of Israel. He uses the same tactic against you and I, trying to get us to forget all the things that God has done, the things that God has said, and the reasons that God had given us that he's for us, and the reasons we have to trust him. The enemy uses... Uh, 
uses his tactics to try to warp and shadow the goodness of God um, with, with lies and, and, and falsehoods. But Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days, and they had forgotten all that he had done for them. And we've, we've read a little bit of what he's done for them so far. The Red Sea crossing, right? The victory out of Egypt, the spoils that got, they got from Egypt, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, the quail, the, the water being purified. I mean, you can go on and on. They were a blessed people. They experienced God in, in a few days in ways that many of us will never in a whole lifetime, right? And of course, spiritually, we're all as blessed, but they saw him in ways that nobody ever would see again. Yet they forgot about all that and all that God was going to do for them. And, and, and I think there's a lot of parallels between these people and us, right? Not that we forget as quickly as they do, but we do forget, don't we? Uh, and, and, and they were waiting on Moses to descend the mountain, right? That Moses went up the mountain to receive the full revelation from God. We believe that he's getting the word of, he's getting the book of Genesis because he quotes Genesis in Exodus 32. So he must have just gotten it, right? Because it wasn't written before. Um, he's on the mountain, not just getting the Ten Commandments, not just getting the tabernacle uh, instructions, but he's getting the whole book of Genesis. He's getting many things that he'll go on to write in Leviticus and of course he would go on to write Numbers and Deuteronomy as well but he's on the mountain getting the revelation from God about to descend and lead them into the promised land. Now, it's, it's obvious, and we know this as Christians, Moses was a type of Christ, right? He was a type of Christ to the nation of Israel, but he was a literal savior to the nation of Israel. And, and we often find in the Bible that the Old Testament features many um, types of Christ, but these were real people who did real things and, and, and for their people, but it still serves as a, as a picture of Jesus. Now, we find in the Gospels that Jesus would often leave the twelve and go to the mountains and pray. You'll probably recognize throughout the Gospels that the, the, the chapter will open and Jesus went to pray on a mountain and the disciples were, were out on a boat or they were out doing this or that. Um, we often find that Jesus would leave the 12 and go and talk to God and then he would just appear, um, often um, out of nowhere or as a, in a surprising way, catching his followers off guard. And I think there's an even better parallel that resonates with us, though, um, because it, it's not that we're the 12 and Jesus leaves and comes back every once in a while, but we're the church that's waiting on Jesus to return, right? That he has ascended to the heavens, but he's promised he's going to come again. So as Israel waited on Moses, let's go to the, hit the back arrow, that should take us back to that one, yeah, as Israel waited on Moses' return to lead them to the promised land, so do we wait on Jesus' return to usher in his kingdom, so I don't think that's a stretch to make that parallel, right, they're waiting on Moses to come down the mountain, we're waiting on Jesus to come out of heaven, literally down the mountain, right, and call us to his kingdom, so I think we can find many similarities in our struggles, in their struggles, as they waited, as we wait, there's often some difficulty, right, as we wait, and they turned to what they could see, right? They turned to what they would immediately find satisfaction through. They asked for an idol. They asked for a God they could see. They asked for things that would please them there and now, rather than waiting on whatever God would bring down the mountain. And often as we wait, even though God says, if you wait on me, I'll reward you, or if you wait on me, things will make sense in the by and by. And even though there are things that God tells us to do that may not seem to be immediately satisfying but have some sort of eternal implication and some sort of eternal impact, often we don't want to wait on the impact, right? We don't want to wait on the promise, right? We want to see something here and now. And often we walk away from what God says to do 
based on the, the fact that there's something better that we think we can do. In the meantime, they turned to what they could see. They turned to what would bring satisfaction. They sought to entertain themselves and their flesh. And, and even those left in Moses' stead, his own brother who had received the revelation with him, his elders that, was in, that were in place, the 70 elders of Israel, they were convinced, they were persuaded, and they were corrupted even to bend an ear to the cries and demands of the people, and they gave in to maintain order. So like they wait, whether it be on the return of the kingdom, we wait as well, Maybe for an answered prayer, maybe for a victory that just doesn't seem like it's ever going to come. And come on, waiting can be tough. Waiting can be tough and it can test and expose our true faith. But as we read Moses' words in response to their disobedience in the aftermath of this golden calf incident, we get insight into what, into what God might be wanting to say to us as we wait and as we struggle and as we make mistakes, right? Or as we sin about where, about what God's, thoughts are, what God's opinions are, what God's judgment are um, about where we have placed our faith and the stances that we take. Because they chose to take a stand. They chose to place their faith in a wrong area, in a wrong place. They chose to move their chips in the wrong direction. They chose to put their faith to take a stand for the wrong thing. And Moses' word, God's word in response to them, I think, gives us insight in what he would say to you and I. Because the reality is, while we wait, even as believers, our faith often moves and shifts, doesn't it? Some days our faith is holy in God, and some days our faith moves a little bit away from God into something else or somebody else, something we can see, something we can taste, something we can feel, something that we can put our tangible confidence in, right? We often find ourselves taking a stance, placing our faith, choosing a side that might not reflect the Lord, right? And in the interim, it may be easy to merge God's will and our will. When he returns, his light will determine the truth. And the Bible says this. Jesus said this on several occasions. One example is Luke 12, where he says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. He's basically saying this. Listen, the motives you live by, the decisions you make, the reason why you make the decisions, whether people know the truth or not, eventually, one day, in eternity, they will be revealed. That it will be known as to what we did, why we did what we did, and what we were doing this or that for. He goes on to say, Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And I don't think the point there is that we're going to be embarrassed or God's going to humiliate us or trying to make an example out of us. I think Jesus is trying to say, listen, whether people know where your faith is, whether it looks like it's here, but it's really there, regardless of what the appearance is, God knows everything, right? And this isn't to scare. This isn't to try to, you know, in intimidate or try to, you know, to, to use scare tactics. It's just trying to say, listen, there are the motives that we have, the decisions that we make, the choices we make, where our faith is and the stances that we've taken, they will be made known. The decisions will be brought to light. But thankfully, we don't have to wait to know if we made the right choice. And here's what I mean. A lot of times, we kind of don't really know if, you know, we, we kind of are confused in the moment. We want to do this, but we don't know if it's wrong or not, or we don't know what, you know, really, really we should do. 
Thankfully, we don't have to wait to know if we, can, if we make the right choice. We don't have to wait to know um, if, if this is the way or that is the way we should take. We can judge our choices and make the right choices in light of God's Word, right? We don't have to wait for God to tell us in eternity, well, let me reveal to you which was good and which, which was bad. We have not been left in the dark, right? Just like they were not left in the dark. They acted as if Moses left them and didn't give them any help. They had received and seen plenty. We have not been left in the dark. We have been given a light bright enough to illuminate our path and direct our steps in everything we do, right? We learned this when we were kids from Psalms 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know what that tells me? That David is saying, my feet are going to go in a direction whether, whether I use the word of God or not. I've got a path I'm going to take whether I use the Word of God or not. So knowing that I'm going to be walking somewhere today, knowing that I've got a path that I'm going to take today, I choose to take the lamp with me and I choose to take the light with me because I don't know if I'm going to need to make a big decision or not for my life, but in in the meanwhile, while I walk in that direction or while I go down this path, I'm going to take the lamp and I'm going to take the light with me because I don't want to be caught off guard. We don't have to wait until we get to heaven to to be told, well, that decision you made, it was good. Or that decision you made, it was bad. That God's word, a full revelation from God, has given us enough light and enough of a lamp to get us where we need to go and to help us make the decisions that we should or shouldn't make. Jesus said this in John 11. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Jesus is saying, if it, referring to the day as the light that he gives us during the day. Following the word of God makes it always daylight, right? It makes there always light for our path. So, I want to read the aftermath of the golden calf incident. And then I want to see what the word um, is saying to us in light of where we might find ourselves tonight. Because even though we've probably never made a golden calf and danced and did all the stuff they did, we've maybe made some similar decisions that I think we can learn from this, uh, from this response. So Exodus 32, verse number 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side, on the other side, they were written. Now, the tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So, very clear there, right? And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to, the Lord, he said to Moses, This is the noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near to the camp, that he saw a calf, saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf, which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel to drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. (laughs) For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. 
People just, you should read the Bible. It's full of all sorts of fun and games. Now, when Moses saw the people were unrestrained, for Aaron did not restrain them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come and stand by me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Now, there's more to the story, but we'll look at, look at that next week. I want to focus on this response to their sin and the invitation that Moses gives them in the aftermath of their sin. The, the, the text in the last verse is up there with the most convinced, convicting and really clear in all the Bible. Um, three things that we find in this text is we find that this, the beginning of this text defines that God's word is our source of truth and light. Now you notice Moses comes off the mountain, but he didn't come by himself. He comes with the word of God in his hand, right? And it's very clear this isn't just something that he wrote down. This is something that God wrote down front to back, right? Cover to cover, bookend to bookend. God is the author. This isn't just about the commandments, but right, that was all, that's all that he had at this point. This is about the word of God in its entirety. God's word is what ultimately will judge us, right? It's not a certain preacher or a certain leader or a certain person, right? It is God's word. Of course, Jesus being God in flesh, the word of God made flesh, Jesus and his word are the ultimate judge of our souls, the ultimate judge of our lives. And as with them, it will be for us. This text declares that our sin is a result of disobedience to God's word. As he comes off the mountain, what does he do? He throws the tablets down because they had broken God's word. The decisions they made, the, the, the situation they found themselves in was a direct result of their disobedience to God's word. The word was broken so their lives were in the mess they were in. This text also details that God's word offers us hope and help. Notice it didn't just end with judgment. It ends with an invitation that it doesn't have to be this way forever. Now, the issue of this situation, of this text, what, what is the judgment against them, ultimately? It's not that they have committed a certain sin that they did something we don't know exactly what they were doing. It says they were reveling or partying or dancing. Of course, the assumption is they were doing more than that. But think back to what the main objective to the Ten Commandments were and still are. Now, remember, the commandments, they weren't a gateway to a relationship, but they were a guardrail for a relationship. The commandments begin that I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. So they were already in a relationship with God. The commandments weren't a way to get in. The commandments were a way to stay safe and to stay in the good graces of God and to stay, you know, stay in the will of God, right? It wasn't a do, you know, if you don't do this, I'll cast you out. But it's if you don't do this, you'll probably get into some situations that aren't ideal. Of course, they just did. The commandments defined the relationship, right? And we learn from the commandments that we see that one God is to be worshipped above all. That's the first uh, part of the commandments. And the last part is that all people made in his image are to love one another and honor him, right? So if we love one another to honor him, we won't sin against someone else. We won't sin against him. If we worship God above all, we won't sin, above, we won't sin against God. So that might make it seem easier said than done, but that is essentially the summation of the Ten Commandments from 1 to 10. So here we find in Exodus 32, they weren't worshiping God above all. That's the problem, right? They were worshiping an idol they made in their own image to reflect their own idea of God. God. They weren't loving one another, but they were using one another for their own pleasure, right? When we don't love one another, we end up using one another, and that usually leads to somebody else's um, loss against our own seeming to be game. 
The Ten Commandments make examining the inner heart a priority. Because if the inner heart is off base, off balance, our actions will be affected. But regardless, if we manage to avoid the outward sin, if our private personal devotion isn't in the right place, we are no better off. That is what the commandments ultimately reveal. It all comes back to do we worship the Lord God above and beyond everything and everyone else. Notice in verse number 19, it says that Moses saw the calf and he saw the dancing. He saw their idol and he saw their actions. And I'm sure they would say, listen, Moses, don't worry. This idol is a stand-in for God. You'll remember back earlier in the chapter, they declared this a feast to the Lord. The Lord, the capital L-O-R-D, to Yahweh, right? They said, hey, we're worshiping God from, from the that brought us out of Egypt. This is just our way of seeing him and you know, understanding him the way we want him to be. But don't worry, Moses, we are worshiping the Lord. Now, we often say we're doing things for Jesus. We often stamp his name on so many things, don't we? Listen, you can take the name of Jesus and you can stamp it on politics. You can stamp it on sports. You can stamp it on any and every religion. You can stamp it on family. You can put the name of Jesus on anything. Just like they did this calf, the name of God. But what did Moses see? He didn't see God. He saw the idol, and he saw their actions. See, our actions will always reveal our true devotion. Their actions revealed that they had broken God's word and were pretty careless about doing so. And that's when Moses, a stand-in for God, a stand-in for his word, issues the invitation and issues the ultimatum. Who is on the Lord's side? Come and stand by me. Now notice this. He doesn't say who's on my side. This isn't about Moses versus them. This isn't Moses versus Aaron. This isn't Moses versus Egypt. This isn't Israel versus Egypt. This isn't any of those things, and it has never been any of those things. Just like in our world today, it's not America versus the Middle East. It's not Republicans versus Democrats. It's not good pastors versus bad pastors. It's not churches versus the world. It's not religion versus politics. It's not any of those things we often categorize and dice the world up by. It's God versus everyone and everything. Not because he's against everyone or everything, but because he's above everyone and everything. Who is on the Lord's side? See, we, I think we can learn so much as Christians in a world that is so divided, where we often take stand, stands for this and we take sides with them. There is only one side we should ever be concerned with being on and associating with, and that's the Lord's side. There is only one side we should ever be concerned with being on and associated with, and that is whose side? The Lord's side. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to affiliate with this organization or that one over and against another. But the problem I see in today's world, and, and maybe you've never done this, but I observe this sometimes. We love to elevate our side with God's side, don't we? See, we're very good at deciding that God's on our side and that our side is God's side. And we're also even better at demeaning their side as the wrong side. Who's they? Anybody we don't agree with, right? 
But we do this, don't we? See, the Israelites created a calf as a stand-in for God. They even dedicated it to the Lord. Yet God wasn't anywhere near the cow. Just like he's not anywhere near half the things we put his name on. And we declare his choice. Again, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm, I'm picking on everybody, actually. I think the moral of the story is that we need to be careful how we take things we have and mold them into our idea of God. We do this, don't we? See, we learn a little bit about God, and we learn a little bit about what God says and what God didn't say, and we don't know everything that God said because who can read the whole book? It's big, right? We learn a lot about God, and we kind of emphasize certain parts of God, or certain ideas of God over others, right? Come on, you do this. We all do this, right? We raise our voice, and we remind our loved ones who we are angry with it about certain something, and we remind them of one idea about God, even though there's another idea about God that might contradict exactly what we say, but we choose to use what we want when we need to use them right for our game. We love to make and mold our idea of God, our ideal version of God, that doesn't reflect his word entirely. I think this is important in an election year. You've heard that it's an election year, haven't you? More than ever, what breaks my heart as a pastor, and again, I'm not picking on everybody, anybody, I'm picking on everybody, so if it, if it lands on your, on your side, just screwed over a little bit, it'll hit somebody else. What breaks my heart as a pastor who is passionate about right and wrong, believe me, I have my convictions about right and wrong, and I have my ideas about that side and the other side, but I am most passionate, and here's the thing I try to hold myself to. When I find myself getting fired up about certain sides of the world and certain ideas and ideologies of man, I remind myself, Justin, who are you fully and mostly aligned with? Where is your full allegiance at? It's with King Jesus, right? It's with the Lord. When, and as a pastor, when I find myself getting upset because somebody went to that church and that church has this idea that I don't like, right? And yeah, they worship the same Jesus as me, but you know what? They push this in front of this and I'm like this because listen, I read, I read theology books for fun, right? I got a new systematic theology book. It's this thick. I can't wait to read the whole thing, right? I know I'm weird. I just do that, right? And I get upset when this church down the road has no theology at all. They have no stand. They don't, they don't teach people the way the Bible says to be t teaching things, but people love it because it just feels good, right? That bothers me. It bothers me a lot, but I have to remind myself, my affiliation is with Jesus. He is my king. They're not my enemy, right? But Jesus is the king, and I need to make sure I'm on his side. Now, his side is, is, is detailed and defined by the word, but bringing this back to politics, because that's more fun. My allegiance is with Jesus, not some demagogue or some politician, as great as they may be and as much as they may benefit me and my finances or whatever. May we always remember the Lord's side is bigger and broader than America's side. I love America. I'm an American. I hope I'm never nothing but an American. But Jesus' side is bigger than America's side. It's bigger than my party side. Let's not shrink him down to being at the mercy of our generation's politics and economic landscape. I know at some point in this year, at some point in this year, and y'all are better than this, but at some point in this year, somebody's going to say, if we don't win, you know who we are. If we don't win, then it's just going to be the end, right? Because our economy and the political landscape of the country or the world it will be completely gone forever. We'll think that, 
and as you can watch this channel and that channel and the other channel or other whatever channel and they'll all convince you that if we don't win we're we're done the country's done and whatever else is done listen i know that's going to be said and there's part of us that gets a little scared isn't there there's part of us that gets, I even said this to Lindsay the other night, if he wins and it's just the end, right? And I, I, I asked myself, what is wrong with you? You said that, right? Let us not shrink Jesus' throne down to being at the mercy of a generation's politics or ec- economic ideas. Because that's pretty shallow, isn't it? He's bigger, so let's act like he's bigger in a world that's going to shrink Jesus down to being a little, ballot, a little box on a ballot. Let's declare that he's bigger than that, right? Amen, can we, be, can we do that this year? Let's declare that he's bigger. Let's act like he's bigger. Let's lead like he's bigger. Let's show the world that our faith and allegiance doesn't prioritize something so small. And another thing. I'm sorry, but I got to. If party lines keep us from loving across the lines, then those lines need to be erased. I'm not saying don't stand behind the line and be the person you want to be and vote for what you want to vote for and have the standards you want to stand, have the standards for because the Bible says a lot you should stand for. But if party lines keep you from loving somebody, erase those lines. You can still have the convictions, but they better get that you better love them. Now we owe civility and respect to Caesar. Caesar is stand in for a country. We owe civility and respect to Caesar, but we do not owe him our faith. We owe our government and our leaders civility and respect, whoever they are, but we do not owe them our faith, even if we like them. Here's the scariest thing as a Christian. It's not finding yourself afraid of your leaders. It's finding yourself trusting in your leaders. As a Christian, don't be afraid. Don't be worried about a leader that might hurt you. Be worried about a leader that might steal your faith, because they will. Even if they're godly, there's a risk. When we start putting our faith in the system, we forget trade, we forget and trade our faith for something less. I guess what I'm trying to say, along these lines of taking sides and whose side that we're on, may we not allow our politics to use us for evil, but only use politics for God's glory and others' good. I think that's a good idea because they will use us. They will use us and they won't think twice about it. This is true in regards to any allegiance we may make in this life, but let us remember when people say, well, what's Jesus' opinion? Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. Amen? He didn't come to take sides. Who would he vote for? He wouldn't vote for them. He'd take over because he'd going to one day. I want to read you, and you can turn there with me if you want to in closing. We're, we're about done. In John 17, a prayer that Jesus prays. We're going to study this in depth later on in the year, but a prayer that Jesus prays for his own and for us the night before he died, or the night that he died. John 17, maybe you can just listen to this if you want to, and you can study it later, but John 17, this is the prayer that he prays for his disciples, and listen to these words. John 17, verses 14 through 21. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Because there's a lot of it. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true. So what's he praying? God, keep them on our side. Don't let them cross the line. Well, you mean every line away from God is the wrong side? He said, yes, that's actually the case. As you sent me into the world also, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So what is his prayer? That we stay on the Lord's side. Listen to this. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that means that the way we live and the side that we're on might impact somebody that's watching. You better believe it. That's the whole goal. Verse 21, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So why is it important that we stay together on the Lord's side and not start fighting battles over lesser sides? Because the world needs to see that we're one with the Lord not somebody else. Now, when the Lord returns, this is what his light will reveal. Whose side are we on? I think the disunity and the disjointed nature of the church reveals that we prioritize a lot of sides over his, don't we? We have so many lines drawn that keep us from representing him. No wonder churches don't grow. No wonder his people don't go. Because we've got so many things that religion has told us we shouldn't do and people that we shouldn't go to, we've diced and divided up everyone like we have that we can't even leave our little bubbles because they might be on the wrong side. <laughs> so I've got to leave you with some questions. When people see us, do they know whose side we're on? Do they? Who and what do we most clearly associate with? I'm not saying it's wrong to associate with this party or with that economic view or with this idea or that idea. Just like it's no, nothing wrong with having this that you're interested in over that, this sports team or that person or that play. It's okay, right? But what are we most defined by? Who are we most associated with? Is it a political party? that casually courts Jesus when it's convenient? Is it a church denomination that highlights certain ideas of Jesus over others? Or, 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 do we reflect the Jesus who is bigger than country and tradition? Are we on his side? That no matter what generation we're of, if we pulled us out of it, you, could, you wouldn't have to dig past the politics and past the tradition to find that we actually love Jesus? Luke 18, Jesus told this parable that ended like this. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now listen, if Jesus showed up in America right now, he'd find faith. He'd find a lot of faith. But would he have to dig past the faith we have in politics and the faith we have in religion to find out if our faith is actually in Jesus? If that's the case, God help us. Let us be clearly defined by our faith in, let us be clearly defined by being on the Lord's side. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, this is so convicting. Because Lord, if you really, if I were to look at my own life, I would say 
you know, Justin is clearly on this side and he's on that side and he believes this and he believes that. But I would honestly say, Father, there's a lot of stuff that's, between, that's on the surface of my life that sometimes takes the place of Jesus. That my politics and my traditions and my ideas and my affiliations with this and that and my interests, Lord, sometimes you've got to dig way down deep to find out that, I, hey, I actually believe in Jesus. Father, forgive me for that. Forgive me for being most known for my convictions about this or that of the world. Forgive me for being on this side or that side. And yes, it might have had a little Jesus on it, but it didn't have all of Jesus in it. It had just more stuff that I wanted there. Lord, forgive me for casually courting Jesus when it was convenient. Forgive me for only picking certain ideas of Jesus whenever it made sense to me. Father, help me to put Jesus at the very top, at the very center, at the very forefront. Lord, help, it to help when people see me. I want them to say that he is on Jesus' side. He worships him above all, and he loves people just like Jesus loved people. Help people to see that in me. Help people to have to dig to find out my politics and help them have to dig to find out my religious traditions. Help them to have to dig to find the stuff that doesn't matter. Help them to be completely, uh, help it to be completely clear whose side I'm on. Father, thank you for these amazing, amazing godly people that are on your side tonight because they're in your house. But Lord, help them to understand that it's so important that we be transparent and clear about being on the Lord's side. Lord, may we all rise up and take that side tonight for your glory and for the world's good. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.